0: Joshua chapter 8. It's the continuation of a sermon series I started many, many months ago. Uh, It's called Realizing the Promises of God. And this is uh, what Israel's doing at this point in their history. They're beginning to realize and to own and to accept some of the promises of God. The book of Joshua is a book of historical events. That's the reason I like it. It's not filled with parables or visions, but true historical events, not even poems. Um, And this is part seven in that sermon series. Uh, So Joshua is the sixth book in your Bible. And I I looked out while Jeff was reading, and I think most of you were looking down, and I'm happy to hear that. Uh, There are extra Bibles if you don't have one in front of you. We're going to be walking through that text shortly. But before I do, let me first explain where we are in history And I think we have uh, an image to show you, a timeline, so to speak. And uh, what you see here is that I'll be talking about a point in history which was about 1300 B.C. That's like a long time ago. That's like 3,300 years ago. Uh, I worked it out. That's like over 200 generations or more. And I know some families here are sitting with three generations. So it sounds like a long time ago, but... But it really isn't in some senses. The people of Israel uh, have, uh, have basically escaped from Egypt. You can see the, the point there where they were under captivity. They were enslaved in Egypt for many, many hundreds of years. Uh, and then escaped through the work of Moses. And, uh, and we call that the Exodus. And now they've arrived uh, and they're beginning to realize some of the promises. So, uh, Joshua... Where do we pick up the story? Moses, as you know, never inherited the inheritance. Uh, He died in the wilderness. And so Deuteronomy actually ends with the death of Moses. And uh, Joshua, the sixth book in your Bible, picks up with that theme. Who replaced Moses? Joshua. Joshua was installed by our Father God to take Israel through and over to the land of Canaan. So here's a quick review, we'll be talking through chapter 8, but I'm going to give you a couple of sentences just as landmarks on the previous chapters. In chapter 1, Moses has clearly died, the 40 years in the wilderness are over, God installs Joshua to lead the nation of Israel, and he tells him to be courageous. In chapter 2 of the book of Joshua, we see Joshua send spies into Jericho, and for the first time we meet Rahab the prostitute, who turns out to be King David's great-great-grandmother. In chapters 3 and 4, the nation of Israel crosses over the Jordan River. It's a powerful, supernatural display of God's power. In chapter 5, we saw the renewal of what is called the covenantal signs. I don't know if you knew this, but an entire nation of men grew up in the desert and had not been circumcised. And so they've crossed over the river uh, Jordan, and uh, Joshua essentially circumcises uh, all of the adult men. In chapter 6, Israel undertakes the siege of Jericho. I think you know the story. They march around it seven times, the walls fall, and they devote the entire city to destruction. As their first city of conquest, they devote it to destruction. It's their first fruits. It needed to be given to the Lord. No plunder was to be taken. Everything was to be destroyed, or at least was supposed to be destroyed. Then in chapter 7 of the book of Joshua, we see the secret sin of Achan be revealed. God was abundantly clear. Nothing was to be taken from Jericho. But Achan and his family sinned, and they kept some of the things, and God knew it. His anger burned against Israel, and in the end, 20 to 30 people are stoned. Several hundred thousand are preserved through the removal and cleansing of that sin. So now we arrive at chapter 8, and that's what Brother Jeff read a few moments ago. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we believe that your Bible, our Bible, your word, was written. By, by your Holy Spirit, that it's spirit-filled, that it's spoken, it's your spoken word, and when it's faithfully preached, your, your voice is heard. Holy Spirit, help me handle the text correctly this morning. Secondly, I ask that this sermon would encourage us, especially me, to persevere in our biblical convictions, earthly ministry, and daily walk with Christ. May the public proclamation of your word this morning honor you, And may it build your church. Amen. So if you haven't already, this is the time to open your Bible. Does every does anybody need a Bible? We do have ushers. You can raise your hands. We will get you a Bible if you need a Bible. We have one hand lifted here. Um, The one in the pew is a King James, but we'll be working with the ESV translation. Let's walk through the text together. Um, and hopefully in the process we'll learn something about the character of God through the passage. How does it apply to me in the 21st century? How does the gospel apply? And we'll end with a few concluding points of application. So, let's walk through the passage beginning in verse 1. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. So this is God speaking to Joshua. He says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Let's just pause here for a minute. We ended chapter 7 in which God's anger burned against Israel. What happened? Well, in their first attempt to take the city of Ai, they fail. Joshua's army is completely roasted by the army at Ai, and they retreat home, licking their wounds. Joshua tears his clothes. God reveals that there's sin in the camp, and so Joshua finds it. And amazingly, under God's instruction, they find it by casting lots, whittled down and whittled down and whittled down by casting lots. Yes, God is in charge of chance. And they find and reveal that it was Achan that had stolen some of the plunder from Jericho and had hid it in the tent and the family knew. And ultimately, Israel repents. And you you might think, well, God is probably going to withhold his grace for a few days, maybe a few weeks, as we enter into chapter 8, but that's not the story. As soon as the sin is dealt with, God's anger is removed, and he takes the initiative by coming to Joshua quickly. With words of great encouragement, he is quick to restore. Psalm 23.3 says, he restores my soul. God is the great restorer, and oh, how he does it with great sensitivity and appropriateness. What does he say to Joshua? He says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. What is he addressing? Fear and discouragement. These are two of the greatest roadblocks that could have threatened the restoration process. Both could have had a paralyzing effect on Israel, but God comes in a gentle and in a strengthening way to encourage Joshua to unveil what turns out to be a military strategy. Now, we struggle with fear and discouragement as well. But thankfully, we are not Joshua. We don't have to try to relate to his military circumstances to glean some possible application for us today. What we can do, though, what we can do is simply claim the promise. You see, the promise here in verse 1 of chapter 8 is very similar to verse 9 in chapter 1, which was, it's famous, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Christian, you can claim that promise too. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God are yes, in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes. So if I'm a, if I'm in Christ, all the promises are yes. In Christ, I'm an offspring of Abraham, so that the promises made to the people of Israel are also made to Christians, because we are the offspring of Abraham in the Messiah. If we pick up in verse two, it says, "Take all the fighting men with you, and arise and go up to Ai." See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. God is giving them Ai. And do you see the grace? What what is what is God's response to the abuse of grace at Jericho and the subsequent repentance in the chapter before? More grace. Here in Joshua chapter 8, God increases his generosity to a repentant Israel, giving them the one thing they were really seeking when they resorted to disobedience in the first place. He's going to give them the plunder. Not allowed to plunder in Jericho, but now allowed to plunder at Ai. But Joshua must be faithful. God says, take all the fighting men. There has to be maximum effort founded on maximum trust. Joshua knows he has more than enough men. He has three to four times the number of fighting men. He could have sent fewer. In fact, back in Joshua chapter 7, he only sent two or 3,000. What does he do this time? Verse 3 says, Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 men. That's like 10 times more than the last time. How do you strengthen melting hearts? You go forward in faith, not lamenting the past and not wishing things had turned out differently, building on the promises of God. We put maximum effort into the obedience of his commands, and this is what Joshua does. He sends all the fighting men. And if you like military tactics, this is kind of interesting. I know some of you play Clash of Clans, some of you play Clash Royale, especially the teenagers. Maybe there's some adults who play it as well. Joshua is told to set an ambush. Verse 4 is pretty clear. He's speaking to the men now. Uh, it says, he commanded them, behold, you shall, shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Where did he get that idea from? He got it from God. Speaking verse 2, God told Joshua, lay an ambush against the city behind it. So they set an ambush. I googled the word ambush. I'm not sure if you knew this, but the U.S. military actually has a training manual for young infantry personnel on the techniques of ambush. I didn't think it was much more than jumping out and scaring somebody when you're playing hide-and-seek in the woods, but it is. And there's drawings, and there's schematics, and there's dozens of ways to implement an ambush, even ways to survive it. There's multi-phase planning and how the platoons communicate. In the Vietnamese uh, war, uh, the Vietnamese themselves were actually very good at it. But obviously the technique is not new. Joshua splits up the men He positions the bulk of the men, 25,000 north of the city of Ai, in hiding. I don't know how you do that, how you hide 25,000 men. He takes up the smaller company of about 5,000 men, and he takes them into position west of Ai, within visual range of the city. And if we pick up in verse 14, we can read together. The narrative speeds up a little bit. It says, as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people the men of the city hurried and went out early into the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all, the, all Israel pretended to be beaten. This is the 5,000. They pretended to be beaten before them and they fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together. They all got caught up in the excitement to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel, which is a neighboring city, who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Well, this was indeed wonderfully disastrous. The king of Ai, seeing the 5,000 camped to the west, decides this is an acceptable number to engage conflict with. It's somewhat larger than the force Israel sent last time of only two to 3,000, but they have a history of rousting this ragtag bunch of Israelites, and they decide to go for it, and they take the bait. The ruse works brilliantly. And not only did all the men come out to fight, but when Israel pretended to withdraw and defeat, it says in verse 15 that all the people in the city were called out to pursue them and drawn away from the city. Let's read together verse 18. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your right hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it and hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled into the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai, and all the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that, and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. Now, this is a story of total destruction. This is a story of judgment. And perhaps as I read it and you read it with me, perhaps you find it hard to read. Rest assured, this is and was God-ordained use of of Israel as an instrument for God's judgment. Remember, these were wicked people. Horrible, polluted worship to false gods, laden with sex symbols and practices, even child sacrifice. And I want to push back and challenge someone who says, God of the Old Testament was wrathful and angry. See, here's an example. While the God of the New Testament is loving and merciful, let's be clear, it's the same God, the one true living God, immutable, unchangeable, now and forever, he is holy and just. This means judging sinful and wicked behavior, he has to. Remember, Ai, like Jericho, was an absolutely sinful, heathen, broken culture. The sin of the people was the same as all the inhabitants throughout Canaan. They worshipped idols. They were immoral. They did evil in the sight of God. And they had been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Please don't misinterpret this. What you see here is a patient, long-suffering God who has held back. He has stayed his hand, but no more. Ai is soon to be dust and ash. You see, sin has consequences it's a serious thing it must be dealt with none of these people were innocent Romans 2 is clear only God is competent to judge and he shows no partiality that means he's absolutely fair when he judges the sin of mankind you and me included nobody is getting away with anything in this world Verse 25 says, And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin, until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. That's true, by the way. It doesn't exist today. I checked it out on Google Maps. I typed in AI. I searched. I hunted. It doesn't exist. In 21st century language, God nuked it. And does that bother you when I say that? Is there maybe a part of you that says, gee, Paul, that seems rough. Surely some of those people were innocent, If you're sitting here thinking that today, let me give you a long answer that ever so briefly touches on theology, the theology of judgment. How can we not talk about Joshua chapter 8, which is in your Bible, where we see a complete city destroyed and not talk about judgment? If you're like me, I sometimes fall into the trap of thinking judgment is mostly a future thing. That's wrong thinking. It's much more than that. If we understand the holiness of God, we understand the need for him to be just. This means judging sinful and wicked behavior. Yes, in the past, and we see a story uh, uh, in, in Joshua chapter 8, but yes, in the future, and we'll talk about final judgment, which is to come, but what about right now? What about right now? The answer for you and me right now is that we're living in a period of grace under a new covenant covenant but this earthly life is temporary the lord is being patient with us right now but judgment is coming final judgment is coming and you know i think i think we all long for justice it's built into creation maybe you long for justice when i was growing up as a child in the 1970s i watched a lot of cartoons and i so desperately wanted bugs bunny and the roadrunner, to go to jail, maybe even die. I long for the writers of those cartoons to just just, just once let Elmer Fudd shoot Bugs Bunny, or maybe the coyote just once get the rock to land on the coyote. I don't watch those anymore, but what I do watch is NCIS and... You can't watch TV without seeing law and order shows everywhere. NCIS is Jennifer's and my favorite. We know all the characters. We watched all the seasons. We PVR all the new episodes. We even watched one last night. And I think deep down I just want the bad guys to face justice. I long for justice. And NCIS is so much better than the 1970s cartoons because at the end of a 60-minute episode, the bad guys usually get caught. And forgive me, that makes me feel good. Here's the thing to remember, though. Final judgment is coming. Jesus is the appointed one by God to judge the living and the dead. It's going to be Jesus. Yes, it's going to be Jesus. And multiple New Testament passages, Acts 10, 2 Timothy 4, Matthew 25, and John 5, make it clear that his authority to execute judgment was given to him by God. If you're a Christian sitting here today, take comfort in knowing you too will be judged. Or you say, wait, wait, wait. The Apostle Paul said there is no condemnation for those in Christ, Romans 8. And that's true. That's a promise. But let's not forget Romans 14. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will give an account for himself to God. So yes, You will stand before the judgment seat, but it won't be a time for punishment. Not for Christians. You will give an account, but every sin you committed was eternally paid for by Jesus and eternally forgiven by the Father. That's the gospel. At that time, Christians will receive the rewards due them for the work they have done in the body, whether good or evil. That's what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. That's an encouragement for us to store up treasure in heaven. Why? So that we can please the Father and glorify his name. That's for Christians. What about for those who don't believe in the name of Jesus? What's going to happen at the end of time for those who don't believe in the name of Jesus? You can read Revelation 11. It makes it clear this will be a time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And that's pretty harsh language. Destroying the destroyers of the earth. At that time, God will destroy all remaining enemies. And regardless of your view of the timing of Christ's return, yes, you can debate that. Premillennial, post-millennial, blah, blah, blah. I don't get into that debate. <laughs> all Christians believe the final victory of Jesus. The final victory of Jesus over Satan, described in Revelation 20, will occur in the future and that Jesus will defeat him once and for all. At the end of the battle, there will be a battle. At the end of the battle, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. That's recorded in Revelation 20. This is something all Christians believe. And if you're like me, it's not so hard to give mental assent to that. We imagine a period of time where Jesus comes back, does what he needs to do, and the Christians get zapped off. But it's not exactly going to be that pretty it's actually going to be pretty messy it's going to be kind of like ai but much worse you see there has to be ultimate destruction of all god's enemies and until i prepared the sermon i hadn't really fully maybe appreciated that i think we have a quote here from david jackman He explains it like this. If there is no ultimate destruction of all God's enemies, there can be no guarantee of the inviolability of his eternal kingdom of love. Now, inviolability is just a fancy word for saying can't be violated. There can be no guarantee of the inviolability of his eternal kingdom of love, joy, and peace. The opposition has to be vanquished and removed if the kingdom of God is to rule as the new creation. This is the logical necessity. If there is to be an everlasting kingdom, a holy city, the new Jerusalem where death shall be no more, where there will be no mourning or crying or pain or tears, This means all God's enemies need to die, all of them. How else are we going to get an eternal kingdom of love, joy, and peace? The bad guys gotta go. Psalm 125 says, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Don't underestimate the amount of death and destruction there will be. And if you can accept that, if you can accept that, then you can accept why the city of AI, all of it, needed to be destroyed. So here's my challenge. Let us be consistent. Let us be consistent in our view of God. Don't be okay with a God that judges in the future, which I think most of us are okay with, but yet question his sovereign ability to judge now and judge in the past. Let us be consistent. Let us be consistent that if we're okay with a God that judges in the future, let us not then question his sovereign ability to judge now and judge in the past. And this is a good place to maybe provide the gospel call. How does the gospel apply? Well, for those of you who call on the name of the Lord, if, if you struggle with the idea of a holy and just God, and maybe you look around and you see, you see good people struggling and you see bad people getting away with stuff, and you can't, you can't explain that in some way, then let, let me tell you, you need to be in te- intentional about studying God's word and understanding God's character. And there's a Bible study for you. There's good books that we can give you to work through that. But if you if you're not a Christian, if you have not been saved, let me say that you do not have the eyes to see, and that you need a new heart. And Take out the heart of stone and by a work of grace, a work of grace by the Father to change you and to transform you. And I would challenge and encourage and exhort you if you haven't given and surrendered yourself to Jesus that you would do that today. And that you will be given new eyes and you will see that there is a loving God who loves you and will adopt you and that your sins will be forgiven, and that you will understand when you look around, you'll, be able, you'll have a framework for understanding why things are the way they are. Here's three quick points of application before we go. Number one, the principle of judgment seen here still applies today. The principle of judgment seen here still applies today. Think with me for a moment. First came the blessing of an easy conquering at Jericho followed by Achan sinning and stealing some of the plunder, which was followed by God's anger and withholding of blessing, manifested as the defeat, the initial defeat at Ai, followed by cleansing and repentance of sin, followed by renewed blessing. There's a principle seen here. It's called the principle of God's judgment of his people. There is a sequence. It's a sequence of events that are relevant in all ages. And let me show you again. First, Achan steals. Second, though only one man sinned corporately, the blessing stopped to the people of Israel. Then when judgment was applied, victory came. It's a process seen repeatedly through scripture. God is present, God is holy, God loves his people and deals with his people consistently. God blesses his people and there is one thing that can spoil his blessing. It's sin, either corporately or individually. Achan stole because he wanted to be like the world, Ananias and Sapphira stole because they wanted social acceptance. Both were followed by judgment. Here's a challenge. As a church, let us be vigilant to help identify sin in each other and repent. Oh, that the gospel would go go forth in St. John's because of the faithful work of Calvary Baptist Church and Mile One Mission. May we ever so deeply dread that God's blessing would slow for us or stop com- corporately because any of any unrepentant sin in us, individually or corporately. By the grace of God, let us seek out, slay that sin, even the respectable sins that we talked about in our fall Bible study, and through the blood of Christ, receive freedom from the guilt of that sin, from the power of that sin. That's the power of the gospel. My second point of application Good trees produce fruit in the time they do have. Good trees produce fruit in the time they do have. Remember when I told you that as a Christian, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, but that we will somehow stand before the judgment seat of God and that each of us will give an account of himself, Romans 14. What will that look like? What will that look like? Maybe you have a picture in your head of some kind of a courtroom situation. Maybe it'll be a vineyard. Jesus told a parable in Luke 13. It's a, somewhat obscure. It's about a fig tree. And he didn't. He doesn't, it's not the one where he curses the fig tree. And here, here it is, and I'll read it to you. He, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? And the vine dresser answered him. He said, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I think there's lots of things we can draw from this parable. But the one thing I wanted to point out, I think, is that Jesus is teaching that the time is short. The time is short. And you can think of yourself as the fig tree, the fig tree that with a year to live. <laughs> so you, you could be the fig tree purchased by the blood of Jesus, planted, cared for, owned, and loved. But good fig trees bear fruit and the time they do have, or they'll be cut down. Thibidi Anyabile, who I had the privilege of sitting under at T4G in April in Louisville, puts it like this, and he's teaching on the parable. He says, The Lord is being patient right now. He gives more time, he waits for his servants to bear fruit, but he will not always wait. He will not always be patient. One day he will inspect us for fruit. The question is will we be fruit bearing or will we be fruitless? The point is the life we've been given is not that long. It's really a commercial for the life that is to come. The life we've been given is simply a stewardship entrusted to us. It's brief. It's brief. And if you struggle, if you struggle with what appears to be injustice or the lack of justice at the present time, remember, it's brief. Final judgment is coming my last point of application, and then we'll switch to communion. Be strong and courageous in Jesus. Be strong and courageous in Jesus. This is the recurring theme in the book of Joshua. God repeatedly commands Joshua to not be afraid and to not be discouraged. It wasn't really an option, and it's not really an option today. God basically says, Don't succumb to this. If you do, repent and run to me, and we'll deal with it. We're commanded to not fear. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. It's a command. The reason we can be strong, the reason we can be strong and courageous and not fear and not be dismayed is that the Lord is going to be with us wherever we go. It's not a promise for physical strength. It's not a promise for physical strength. Be strong means be strong in the strength of the Lord. If this is true, the other parts will follow. John Piper explains it like this. If I'm strong in the strength that God supplies, I can be courageous. If I'm strong in the strength that God supplies, I don't need to be afraid. If I'm strong in the strength that God supplies, I don't ever need to be dismayed or discouraged. This is a call to faith. Faith in the promised strength of God. How does the gospel fit? For Christians, this strength was purchased through the blood of Jesus. Though we deserve nothing but destruction, we know that all the blessings that come into the lives of sinners like ourselves comes through the purchases made by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that we would understand your word and understand your character lord we struggle when we see what appears to be injustice what appears to be your lack of justice lord may we understand the promise of your return the promise that time is short the the parable of jesus that 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 we need to be fruitful and maybe someday you will return not someday someday you will return and you will inspect us for our fruitfulness Lord, help us as we share the gospel this week. May we be encouraged and equipped to hope those who, or help those who don't have hope um, and share the gospel with them. I give all this to you in your precious name. Amen.